This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and privilege of speaking with uh, Professor Ignaz Fergote, who uh, will be uh, speaking to us on the subject of hyperthermic intraperitoneal uh, chemotherapy. He is currently a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Gynecologic Oncology at Catholic University in Leuven, uh, Belgium. Ignaz, welcome. Thank you. So, Ignaz, obviously this is a, a topic that certainly extends beyond uh, the, the, the time frame that we have, but certainly we'll take advantage of having you um, in this discussion. And I wanted to just uh, start with, uh, with the fact that if you could please uh, just give us some background details regarding HIPEC and, and why would it theoretically seem like a reasonable option for patients with uh, ovarian cancer? Well, obviously, uh, we all know that ovarian cancer mainly spreads interperitoneally, and that was also the basis for IP chemotherapy. Um, that's the first reason um, for maybe using an IP therapy. Um, of course, we know the GOG's 252 study, which was the best and largest study published this year in more than 1,500 patients, which was negative for IP, but, but using IP chemotherapy has been uh, a rational because it spreads mainly intraperitoneally and recurs intraperitoneally. The second reason is, of course, that the dose is higher um, when you use a drug intraperitoneally. And also there, we don't have good arguments to say that um, higher dose in ovarian cancer leads to better survival. We have different older trials comparing AUC4, carboplatin with, with uh, 8 and so on. And also the high-dose uh, chemotherapy um, study, the high-dox high study with high-dose and stem cell support, also this study did not um, result in a better survival. So high-dose interperitoneally, and then the third is, of course, hyperthermia. Uh, hyperthermia might increase the efficacy of chemotherapy, but this is uh, something which, um, in my mind, should be proved. So, Ignaz, one of the things, obviously, is that <clears throat> HIPEC hasn't really been integrated in the management of uh, advanced ovarian cancer, and, and certainly we're going to speak to those uh, potential reasons, but what do you think have been the, the major barriers to the integration of HIPEC? Because there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm in certain areas around the world but it it really is not part of the standard of uh, of today's management. What what are your thoughts? The problem has been that there were until recently only retrospective studies of uh, institutions uh, that were enthusiastic about the treatment. Uh, so now, obviously, we will discuss uh, later. I think the uh, Dutch study. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was positive, but that's the only study which is randomized and prospective um, and which was positive. Um, the other barriers uh, are, of course, that we should know that it has its considerable toxicity, longer operations, longer hospitalizations, more complications such as infections and emboli and all these kind of things. And it has a certain cost as well. But I think mainly the toxicity and the fact that there were no randomized uh, trials until recently uh, 
I think we're the main betters. And so now, Ignas, uh, just uh, speaking um, sort of in, in, in a sequence of the setting, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the primary surgery uh, setting. And I know that certainly in, in a number of institutions, uh, HIPEC is uh, considered in, uh, after primary surgery. Um, what are your thoughts? Is there any evidence to, to support HIPEC uh, in the upfront uh, debulking of uh, patients with advanced ovarian cancer? Well, there are, like I said, a lot of retrospective institutional-based uh, studies. There's one randomized study which was reported at ASCO uh, at the same time as the Dutch study. It's the Korean study. That included about half the, of the 184 patients after primary debulking. And HIPEC in this setting, in this also small randomized study, uh, was uh, also negative. So we don't have really good data to use it up front. And then uh, your your thoughts with regards to uh, whether there are any patients that potentially would benefit from uh, HIPEC. Uh, you know, there, there's been some suggestions I've heard in, in some conferences with regards to, well, perhaps in patients with mucinous tumors of ovarian origin, um, is there any data to support HIPEC in that setting at the time of upfront debulking? Well, also in my situation, HIPEC is used in colon cancer, uh, like in many others. Uh, so I looked uh, um, once on the data in colon cancer, and also there, it's not convincing. There have recently been published two studies. Um, one is the Prodigy 7 study, published in DCO last year, if I remember correctly, in colorectal peritoneal carcinomatosis, and also this study was negative, uh, both for PFS and OS, and showed a higher morbidity of HIPEC compared to this control arm. And the second study in um, um, colorectal cancer, which is obvious um is the Colopec study from also Holland and also uh, headed by the same institution, the National Cancer Institute in Amsterdam, and published, uh, I think, last month by Klauber in Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. And that's in the adjuvant setting of colon cancer that has perforated mainly and where there is a high risk of peritoneal carcinomatosis. But also there, um, the study uh, was negative in PFS and OS. So to me, there is no randomized data, um, even in colon cancer, to say that we should treat mucinous ovarian cancer with HIPEC. And now, with regards to certainly proposing uh, if there were to be a, a trial, um, a prospective randomized trial in the upfront setting, um, in, you know, in, in your mind, what, what would that trial look like? Uh, you know, specifically addressing the experimental arm and what should be the primary endpoint if we were to say this would be the ideal trial in upfront uh, surgery? First, the endpoint, I think, like we said also in the gynecological cancer intergroup uh, meetings uh, on how we should do studies, we usually accept PFS as the primary endpoint because there are in ovarian cancer so many other treatments and lines afterwards that are always difficult to show. So I think in first line, PFS uh, should be fine. Of course, if there is OS data or co-primary endpoint with OS, I would not be against this. 
I think the the major point is that these studies should be large. Like I, I mentioned already, the IP studies, uh, 172, the Markman study, and so on, and the uh, Dave Albert study, these were rather small, but if you take a large study in 1,500 patients like uh, GOG 252 did, then with equal arms, you can maybe and hopefully show a progress a, or a better survival in these patients. Now, for HIPEC, the danger is, of course, that uh, the surgeons are biased. Um, so uh, we in NGOT believe that uh, a new trial in first line, after primary debulking, the randomization should be, like we did also in the LION study, should be once you're ready with your surgery, and then you randomize first. Because otherwise, when you know it before you start the surgery, you might be biased. And the type of surgery you do and, and, and fear, fear of complications, but also in what you do, certainly if you believe in HIPIC. And the second thing which we advised in, in, in uh, NGOT and also in the GCIG is that you should be sure what does hyperthermia, what does the chemotherapy, and how can we do this unbiased. So that's why we proposed to randomize after, when the surgery is done and then give hyperthermia with saline and hyperthermia with chemo. Then you are not biased, you don't know what is happening, it's double blind, and then if it's a large study, I think this would be the only way to convince the whole world that uh, IPIC has a better PFS and hopefully also OS. I've even suggested just give hyperthermia alone and then give the chemo IV, but then you would end up with forums. That's probably too much, but but hyperthermia and then randomizing saline for chemotherapy would be much more convincing. Yeah, you definitely bring up uh, a number of items that are are definitely crucial, and I'm, I want to touch on one of them a, a little bit later in the, in the discussion. But uh, now, jumping on to the point of interval surgery, and I was uh, very fortunate to hear your uh, lively debate at the uh, ESGO meeting in Athens uh, recently. Uh, for interval surgery, obviously, this is the only place where we have uh, prospective randomized data. Um, specifically, if you can sort of outline your thoughts on the recent prospective uh, Dutch uh, trial, uh, what were you see as the strengths or the weaknesses of, of the study, and how do we move forward after this uh, important study? Well, the, of course, it's a randomized trial, so that's a strength, um, and it's a positive trial. The um, but there are quite a number of limitations which I would like to touch on. The first is it's a small study. It's only 245 patients, and it's reduced due to slow accrual. The original 280 patients were reduced to 214. Second problem is that um, the statistical expectations were completely different from what they saw in the control arm. They expected 18 months survival PFS in the control arm, but they had only 11 months. And they expected six months difference, and they had only four months in PFS. Um, so this is much lower. And in addition, these 11 months PFS in the control arm, and even in the, in the high arm, 14 months, even if you add them the 
three months uh, because it's um, randomization at time of interval, the blocking instead of primary. Till then, in patients that are hyper-selected, only stage three, not four, with an adjuvant chemotherapy and a good response, and uh, 68% are zero. This is an excellent group. So even in this population, 14 months or 17 months, PFS is uh, very short and not convincing. And the third thing is, how do we explain such a small difference in PFS and then a difference in OS of 11 months, 34 versus 45 months? To me, the, the reason is that uh, the authors did not, of course, want that, but that there is an imbalance in prognostic factors. Mm -hmm. For instance, we should realize that there is only a difference of 15 patients because the study is so different, is so small between the HIPEC arm and the control arm. But if I tell you that in the control arm, 13 patients had high-risk non-high-grade serous, but high-risk tumors such as carcinosarcomas, mm -hmm. we all know they do badly, mucinous mm -hmm. carcinoma, gliosar carcinoma, metastasis from other sites, 13 versus only three in the control arm. This explains to me at least very easily at least 10, 10 deaths difference in the OS. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the hyper arm has more low-grade serous and low-grade endometroid. So obviously this can, this is the group that survives longer. So this again is what I mean with small studies. You should be uh, careful and then what I already mentioned um, in the uh, Dutch uh, trial of Van Riel, only centers who had HIPEC were selected first, and they knew before the surgery, like we discussed already, what the patient would have, and some already at the time of starting the neonatal chemotherapy, and that there is difference in the surgery, there must be. If you see on the patients who had a bioresection, 72% had the stoma, mm -hmm. while only 43% of the control arm, meaning that these surgeons were biased because they knew they would get high pick. So they put almost a double number of um, of ileostomies or colostomies mm -hmm. because they knew this would happen. And the same, I think, happened to, might have happened to the surgery. What is also interesting to see is that, that the, the difference in favor of high pick is not in the biggest center, in the lead center with more than 100 patients. There, the hazard ratio is almost one, while the difference is in all the small centers who had 10, 20, maximum 25 patients randomized. So again, I believe that in these smaller centers, it would be easier to see a, a, um, a bias than in the larger center. And, and then, of course, finally, I think the, the problem also why I, and also, as a matter of fact, also the editors of uh, the New England Journal wrote an editorial, and also they concluded this is an interest group trial, but not enough to change the standard of care because it's a toxic treatment. Whatever you say, if you look on, on the toxicity data, there are more infections, more obstruction, more pain, more thromboembolic events, longer operations, longer hospitalizations two-and-a-half-hour longer operation. So this is not not a thing which you do without valid, confirmed, validated, prospective randomized trials.
So it, it does sound obviously that this trial has not changed your your practice as it pertains to uh, patients undergoing interval surgery, um, and uh, and and again, obviously the the the, the question is, do, do you see if there's any benefit uh, from HIPEC at this point for interval surgery, or do we need to get additional information in in your mind? Sure. Also at interval debulking surgery, we need a validation and in a larger trial before accepting this standard of care. And I can tell you that um, during the ESMO-ESGO consensus conference on standards of care, which we held uh, earlier this year, and which was published in our journal, the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer by Nicoletta Colombo, as first author, the vote was unanimously that HIPEC is not the standard of care in Europe, uh, also after interval debulking surgery. And Ignaz, then that brings us to the point of uh, recurrence. And, and in many areas around the world, this is probably one of the areas where there is the strongest uh, push for HIPEC. Um, do you see any role of HIPEC in the recurrent setting? Well, of course, the data are even much weaker in the, the recurrent setting. There are no randomized data or no valid randomized data. Um, I think there is one very good uh, systematic review by Luis Chiva from uh, Madrid in Ganyonk in 2015, I think. And also in this review, you see that the data are very, very weak, not randomized. And also he concluded that there is no evidence to use HIPIC as a standard of care. So, Ignace, I, I, uh, I wanted to sort of get, get your, your perspective, and this is more sort of like a philosophical question than a scientific one. You know, why do you think there's so many centers around the world still advocating for HIPIC in patients with advanced ovarian cancer when there's really very little data to support the use of this uh, approach in ovarian cancer? I think that's a difficult one. Um, well, obviously, a new technique or a new um, um, treatment modality um, can be regarded as a um, kind of something you have which other hospitals in the neighborhood don't have. It's kind of advertising. Mm -hmm. I think you, you will realize that's also the same happened with robotic surgery in some countries. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there is a push, of course, by the companies who push HIPEC, who sell it. Um, but also uh, it's a matter of advertising and, and trying to attract patients. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody who does HIPEC is trying to uh, attract patients in this way, but, but it's logical if you have a technique which your neighboring hospitals don't have, your hospital might be happy that that you get more patients to your department in this way and i think this may might have played a role because obviously a toxic treatment we would not give unless um, there is a good um, validated randomized studies to do that and ignace you you spoke uh, previously about the issue of a qualified center or a, or a, you know a high volume center for for HIPEC. and you know and obviously there's, there's there's a lot of individuals who say well we have we have a specialized center 
But there's really no, to my understanding, there's really no concrete definition as to what makes a center a, a specialized high-back center. But what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's essential that it's not a high-back center. A center should not be recognized for one technique, um, but should uh, have should fulfill all quality indicators. And with the European Society of Gynecological Oncology, we have published last year in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, by the way, uh, the quality indicators for um, ovarian cancer surgery for the bulkings. And, and there, there are many quality indicators, but one which is uh, most striking is, for instance, that for to be a center of excellence in Europe, nominated by by ESGO, you need to do at least 100 debulkings per year. If these centers reduce so much ovarian cancer um, to HIPEC, they can get enough experience. And I think uh, not the number only, because in the, in the ESGO uh, quality indicators, which I refer to, there are many others, for instance, the number of patients who have a R0 section, uh, how many surgeons, and so on and so on. But having for, to fulfill these quality indicators, you should fulfill that before you start a difficult and toxic treatment like HIPEC. So, Ignace, uh, obviously, we, we can keep talking for a long time, and, and I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you on this subject. Um, are there any closing remarks you would like to make, and particularly, where do we go from here as it pertains to HIPEC in, in ovarian cancer? Well, I think um, what I alluded to, I think, I think we should really support doing randomized studies, but large randomized studies like I explained, and we should not incorporate HIPEC uh, as a standard of care treatment without sufficient evidence from prospective randomized trials. And I think this is the essential thing. I'm, I'm not against HIPEC. I just want to see it proven before, in a large randomized trials, before we uh, uh, accept that as a standard of care. Ignace, thank you so much. And uh, again, I want to thank you not only for doing this podcast, but all the great contributions you made to the field of gynecologic oncology. And I am honored to have uh, had this opportunity to speak with you. My pleasure and my honor, Peter.